Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me this morning, open to the book of Exodus chapter 17. In a moment we will read together the first seven verses of Exodus 17. And as we come to Exodus this morning, I'm reminded of what it says in the book of Isaiah, when it says, the grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Our world is fading away. We see that happening all around us. Our lives, our flesh is fading away. We experience that from the moment that we're born. We're moving toward that moment of death. But the word of the Lord will stand forever, will endure forever. What else would we want to hear from today? If we have the word of the Lord that endures forever, what else is there to hang our life upon than his word? To sustain us, care for us, reveal God to us, Many people are looking for something in life that is lasting. How many people treat hope like they're shopping for milk, trying to find that gallon that has the furthest expiration date away? But the hope that comes from God's Word has no expiration date, does not fail will never fail. So with that in mind, let's read together Exodus 17. Would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as we read, as you follow along while I read Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us 
and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of, that, of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father. May your enduring word have a lasting effect upon our hearts and our minds today. And so transform us and change us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Why do we gather together for corporate worship on Sunday mornings? Why are we here today? What's the point of all of this? We could put our heads together and probably come up with some good, very biblical reasons even. We're gathering together to show our unity in Christ Jesus. that We bear His name to show that we are the people of God. We gather together to love one another and so show the world that we are Christ's disciples. In fact, that's what Christ says. The world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. We are to gather together to grow in our relationship and walk with Jesus Christ. We gather together to be a light that's shining in a dark world. We gather together to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We gather together as those under the word of God. We gather together to serve the Lord and serve one another. We gather together to receive from God what he is giving to us. We gather together to reenact covenant renewal in our relationship with the Lord. We gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather together to commemorate his sacrifice and his death. We gather together to worship God. All of those are very good answers, biblical answers. But have we reached the ultimate answer yet? The answer that is above every other answer, perhaps. Let's put how we would answer that question, why we gather together on Sunday mornings, to a test. Let's test it by another question. What is the question you ask yourself when you get in the car 
after our time together? What's the first question that you ask yourself? If I were to speculate, and I include myself in this, we might ask ourselves something like, did I like the church service today? In fact, you might even ask a spouse, your husband, a wife, you might ask your kids that same thing. Did you enjoy church today? Did you like it? Did you like the music? Did you like the preaching? And given the week, given the style, given your set of preferences, given the amount of sleep that you had the night before, given how well your children behaved or didn't behave, given what might be at the forefront of your mind right now that is distracting you and making it almost impossible for you to focus, you might give a number of reasons to that answer, that question. And each one of us might give a different answer. Did I like church today? And as a pastor, I fear what one of my, pra- my, one of my pastor friends said this week, what, what he heard from one of his congregants. The congregant came up to him and said, Pastor, worship was boring this Sunday. How would you respond to that? Worship was boring. Really? Says who? You or God? This is the problem we all are tempted to fall into. We are self-centered rather than God-centered. At the foundation of that question, did I like church today or not, who does that question revolve around? It revolves around me. So let us go back to the initial question. Why do we gather together for corporate worship on Sunday mornings? Simply put, to meet with God, to commune with the living God, to draw near to the God of all creation. We do it all everything that we do to give you God. Because there is nothing greater, nothing better, nothing more satisfying that you can have or that you can know than to know that you've met with God. And how many other criteria do we use to judge our corporate time together, but we never examine the ultimate criteria. Perhaps the only criteria that really matters is God among us and have we met with Him? This is why when we come together for corporate worship, if you notice, everything is centered around God's Word. From the call to worship to the benediction, everything is centered around God's word. Why? Because this is how we believe you meet with God. You meet with God through his revelation of himself. You meet with him and communicate and commune with him through his word. 
So we come together, we read the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, we see the Bible through the Lord's Supper and through baptism. And we do it all so that we might know him, meet him, in order to respond to him in worship. And this will only happen through the scriptures. Is this what we know? Is this our experience? And is this why you would say, this is why I have to be with God's people on Sunday morning because I want to meet with God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, gives a scenario where an unbeliever or an outsider enters the church and this person comes under conviction because of their sin. They're called into account because of their sin. It says that the secrets of their heart are disclosed and that for the first time, they see themselves for who they truly are and they see that there is something that's missing in their lives they come to their senses and they begin to see and understand the truth of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that that unbeliever will fall on his face, he will worship God, and he will declare something. He will say, God is really among you. His eyes will be open to a new reality, not a religion that projects who they would like their God to be, not a religion that constructs a God from their own imagination or fantasy. No, they encounter, for the very first time, God, and it brings them to true worship from the heart as they bear witness and acknowledge their unworthiness in the presence of the living God. Is that what we pray for? God, if you were to bring people through those doors on any given Sunday, they would say, God is really among these people. That their eyes would be open to a whole new reality that they never knew before. That this God isn't a made-up God. This God isn't a, a God that they would like to believe. This is the true God. And is this what we can attest to because it's what we know in our own lives? We should know it, but does it ever pass by without a thought? Or even worse, is it something that we would question in our minds? Is the Lord among us? Or not? The Israelites are making their way through the school of the wilderness, and with each stop so far along the way to Mount Sinai, the Lord has been testing his people. Like any school, there must be important questions that are asked and correctly answered. So along the way, we've already encountered some of these questions. The first question there at this place called Mara, the question was, who is going to heal the people of God? And as Moses throws the tree into the bitter water to heal it and, make it and make it sweet, we are taught the Lord is our healer. The next stop, the wilderness of sin, comes the second question. Who is going to sustain the people of God? And as the Lord provides manna for his people morning by morning, we are taught the Lord is our sustainer. And now we come to another stop along the way. 
three months or so after the Lord has brought the people out of Egypt, we're confronted with another question, this question posed by the Israelites themselves, and we see it in the very last verse of our text this morning, verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? And we as Christians, of all people, should know that we never have to even ask that question. The Israelites did not ask this question in faith. They asked this question actually in unbelief. We likewise might be tempted to ask such a question, but our certainty and confidence should be that the Lord is among us. And if He is among us, how are we to respond to Him? We look at two ways to respond to the truth that the Lord is among us as we listen to this text this morning. So in your bulletin, there's an outline if you'd like to follow along, if that's helpful. The first way that we respond to the truth that the Lord is among us. The Lord is among us, so we must not test Him despite our desperate circumstances. The Lord is among us, so we must not test Him despite our desperate circumstances. Do you pray for the Lord's leading and direction in your life? Have you ever asked yourself this question? God, why am I going through all of this? How do you know if God is leading you in your life? Is it if everything happens that happens in your life is, is good and pleasant? Do you know the Lord is leading you in your life if you get everything that you want? Is God leading you if you are happy and healthy and wealthy? Would God ever lead you to a place where you're not happy? Would He ever take you to a place when you're not healthy? Would he ever remove the comforts of your life? How many times are we certain that God is leading us in our lives because it's what we really want? The congregation of Israel set out from the wilderness of sin. They left in stages. So that is, they left group by group. You can imagine such a large company of people. It might be more easy for them to move out in stages. But why did they leave the wilderness of sin? Why did they travel in this way, in, even in this direction? Do you see what it says there? Verse 1, they did this according to the commandment of the Lord. Literally, it was direction that came from the mouth of Yahweh himself. God is the one who is directing his people through their wilderness travels. His itinerary is being followed. It's not man's itinerary. It's not even Moses' itinerary. God said, move out. So they moved out in his time and in his way and in the direction that he wanted them to go. And where did the Lord command them to go? To this place where they stopped and camped, Rephidim. And what did they find at Rephidim? Nothing. They get to the place 
where God told them to go, but it says they found no water for the people to drink. How similar and slightly different this was from their very first test. In the first test, the Lord led them to this place called Mara. Mara, there was bitter water, but the water was undrinkable. They didn't have any water to drink. But now, the Lord has led them to Rephidim, and they don't even have any water. I mean, at least at Mara, the Lord had something to work with. Here, there's nothing. And who put them in this place? It was undeniably God. The Lord brought them to Rephidim, knowing that there would be no water for the people to drink. It wasn't a surprise to God. He made Rephidim have no water. He purposed it that way. This is what he wanted. Could there be a worse situation in the eyes of the people? Can you think of a more desperate situation? What, how would you respond? What would your response be if the Lord put you in a place where there was no water? We need water. Without water, we die. Could it ever be that the desperate circumstances that we find our, ourselves in are from the Lord himself? He has orchestrated them, he has planned them, and he has specifically purposed them for our lives. And would we be willing to accept these from the Lord? Or would we do what the Israelites did? They quarreled with Moses. They brought a dispute saying, give us water to drink. Here you hear a, a demand. Moses, take us out of this desperate situation. This is awful. No one wants to be in this situation. We know what's best for us, and what's best for us is water. <laughs> Perhaps this is a point where we would think, that sounds reasonable enough. I mean, after all, these people are without water. They're desperate. Seems like a legitimate demand. But Moses responds and peels back to show us what is at the heart of the Israelites' demand. You see what Moses says there in response. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? These two questions are parallel questions. That is, they are saying the same basic truth, just slightly differently. When Moses asked them why they were quarreling with him, their quarreling with him showed that they were actually, at the same time, testing the Lord. They were putting Yahweh to the test. And here, now we reach a zone of turbulence. We've been flying along through the school of the wilderness, and with each event, it says that the Lord is testing his people. At Marah, the Lord is testing his people. In the wilderness of sin, the Lord is testing his people. But now, the plane's starting to shake because it's not the Lord testing his people, but the people have flipped the scales, if you will, and now it's the people who are testing the Lord. 
And this is dangerous. Now the people have arrogantly thought that they could turn the tables on Yahweh. It's not Yahweh's testing that is at the forefront of of this event. It's the people's testing of the Lord. Why is this so bad? What's wrong with this? What's wrong is that the people are in essence setting themselves up as judges over God. God, we will judge you. We will determine what is right and wrong. We will tell you what is bad and what is good. God, you are not the standard. We are the standard. We will do the asking. You make your defense to us as the judges who are sitting over you. And here is what their judgment is given the current desperate circumstance that they are in. They show a lack of faith in God's servant and in Yahweh himself because they have an inner belief that God does not really care for them. And more than that, they bring in to question Yahweh's ability and willingness to provide water for them. Can we relate to the Israelites? In the desperate circumstances of life, are we tempted to ask, does God really care about me? How do we put God to the test? We ask, is he really good? It's the same struggle that has haunted all of mankind from the beginning of time at the Garden of Eden when the serpent, the devil, spoke to Eve and tempted her to test the sufficiency of God's word and the goodness of his person. The people in Israel, of Israel here in Exodus 17, they only grumble more against Moses and against Yahweh. Grumbling has been in all three of these events. <laughs> We've seen it as an attack on God. It's evidence of an absence of faith. And it's rooted again in self-centeredness. The Israelites have the audacity to speak to Yahweh as if he is making a personal attack upon them. They are accusing him. What are they saying? You hear it here, don't you? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? There is no good reason in their mind at this point. And you hear it when they say to God, you want to kill me? You want to kill my children? And you want to kill my livestock? Yahweh, Lord, you want to wipe us off of the face of the earth. It's almost like they're accusing God of him treating them like the Egyptians. The Egyptian children died. The Egyptian livestock died. God, why are you treating us like you treated the Egyptians? Let us call this testing what it is. This testing of the Lord is sin. 
It is sinful to test the Lord. It is wrong for us to set ourselves up as judge over God. It is wrong to accuse Him of not caring for you. It is wrong to call into question His sovereignty, His goodness, and His grace, and His steadfast love. Are you in desperate circumstances? Will the Lord lead you into desperate circumstances? Good. The Lord has you right where He wants you. Therefore, do not test Him. Do not test Him because you have a Lord who is bigger and greater than you are. His ways are beyond finding out. And later, another command comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. Here we are at Massa. Now this commandment comes out of this event. Do not test the Lord as you did there at Rephidim at Massa when you did not have water. This is the verse. This Deuteronomy verse is the verse that Jesus uses with Satan in the wilderness. Do you remember that event? Satan places Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple and says, Jesus, cast yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. And don't worry, the Bible says the Lord will send his angels to protect you. He'll care for you. So throw yourself off. I mean, is God really good? If God is really good, he will care for you and you won't be harmed. What does Jesus say in response? It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus didn't need to throw himself off of the temple to prove God's goodness. What do you need in your life to prove God's goodness? We don't need to prove it. He is good. While the sons of Israel failed and disobeyed in the wilderness and put the Lord to the test, the Son of God, the true Israel, succeeded and perfectly obeyed in the wilderness and refused to put his Father to the test. And so we follow him. And so we do not harden our hearts as they had hard hearts in the rebellion. That was the heart condition of the Israelites. They tested the Lord because they had hard hearts, hearts that were filled with unbelief, hearts that were deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's why what we read in Hebrews today is so important. Here again from Hebrews 3, take care, brothers. So who is the writer of Hebrews writing to? Believers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. May it never be. May it never be. Hear this warning, Christian. Hear this warning and respond. And I believe that all believers and Christians 
will hear the warning and will respond and will have this natural rising up in their hearts as prompted by the Spirit to say, may that never be me in my life. May I never have an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead me to fall away from the living God. No, with greater resolve and with greater confidence and with greater faith, I will follow Him. And how does it happen? But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. We hear God's voice through one another as we proclaim biblical, scriptural truth to each other. Exhort one another. Keep going. Don't give in. Don't question God's goodness. Don't put Him to the test. He is good. In your desperate circumstance, do not give up. Do not give in. And we need that How often? As long as it's called today. (laughs) So that none of you, none of you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Could it be that the Lord leads us into those desperate circumstances, not for the hardening of our hearts, but for the softening of our hearts. That all that we go through that hurts, that's heart-wrenching, that's difficult, all the tribulation, all the persecution, everything that we could ever imagine. The Lord does that to soften our hearts towards Him. And so then, we can do what his word says, which is utterly astounding. Rejoice in suffering. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Think of those words. Count it joy. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because God is going to show you his goodness. Because God has not left you. He is there. He is not far. He is near. He will care for you. Second response that we have. The Lord is among us, so we must trust him and the salvation he provides through his own suffering. The Lord is among us, so we must trust him and the salvation he provides through his own suffering. Trust him and the salvation he provides through his own suffering. The people have come, they've been complaining, they've been grumbling, they've been demanding, and in response to Israel's grumbling, And testing, Moses turns to the Lord and he cries out to him, just as he cried out to the Lord at Marah with the bitter water. So now Moses again cries out to the Lord at Rephidim where there is no water. And notice how Moses, it appears here, distances himself from the people. What shall I do with this people, with these people? Lord, don't put me with them, these people. What am I going to do with them? 
And then we see how desperate it's gotten for Moses in this circumstance. He's being threatened by the Israelites. They are almost ready to stone me. They think, Lord, that you are attacking them to kill them, so they are ready to respond by killing me. They are going to use stones to take my life. Threatening to kill the one sent by God? Wouldn't be the last time that happens. Here's some irony. While the Israelites are threatening to take life with stones, the Lord is about to give life with a rock. And the Lord instructs Moses to pass before the people. The action of the Lord calls Moses to take a public action. This is not to be done in secret. This is not done behind closed doors. On the one hand, it could be that Moses is called to pass before the people like walking the gauntlet. <laughs> Moses has said, the people are ready to stone me. The Lord says, good, walk, walk by him. <laughs> I'll take care of you. He also takes with him some of the elders of Israel. They were to serve as witnesses as what was about to happen. These leaders would see and experience firsthand the Lord himself. And Moses was to take in his hand the staff with which he struck the Nile. This staff, let's just have a remembrance of what we've seen with this staff so far. This is a staff that turned into a dragon and swallowed up the dragon staffs of the Egyptian magicians. This was the staff that struck the Nile and turned it into blood. This was the staff that struck the dust and gnats swarmed over all of Egypt. This was the staff that was stretched towards the heavens and thunder and hail and fire rained down upon the earth. This is the staff that was stretched out over the land of Egypt and brought an east wind that was filled with locusts. This was the staff that was lifted up over the Red Sea and it divided so people could walk through the sea on dry land. Why was the staff significant in the hand of Moses? What place did it hold in the eyes of the people? It was a staff to bring judgment. The specific highlighted event in the text is that Moses took that staff, struck the Nile, and what happened? The very life source of the land of Egypt, the Nile, turned to blood. The water that was needed for life was no longer drinkable. The Nile that the Egyptians worshipped was shown to be of no use and no good. And so as Moses took the staff in his hand, took some of the elders, and passed before the people, we might be wondering what judgment was going to fall on all of these people because of their great sin against the Lord. What punishment is God going to punish them with on account of their sin and their unbelief and the hardness of their heart? There is no doubt they rightly deserve to be punished. 
Could it even be that Moses passed before the people with some of the elders with the staff of Yahweh in his hand and that there was the thought of judgment that was about to fall upon them as if they are going to be taken to the woodshed by the Lord? And so what does the Lord do? We wait with bated breath. He says, behold, take notice. The Lord is about to do something amazing, spectacular, thoroughly unexpected. The Lord Yahweh himself declares that he will stand there on the rock at Horeb. Horeb means dry and desolate. Can anything good come out of Horeb? Horeb was named Horeb because it had no water. That is what it was known for. But it was here where Yahweh had already revealed himself to Moses. Do you remember way back in Exodus chapter 3? Where is Moses? Moses is in Horeb at the mountain of God. It's there that the Lord reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. It's there that the Lord says to Moses, I am who I am. And it's there in Exodus 3.12 where the Lord says, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What are we to make of this now that we're back at Horeb? God is about to fulfill His promise with His very presence. And what a sight. The Lord says he will stand there on the rock. What is the Lord doing? The Lord is identifying himself with the rock. In fact, the Lord takes this imagery upon himself throughout the word of God. What a glimpse we get of this at the end of the last book of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. Listen to how the Lord is referred to as the rock repeatedly. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect. Deuteronomy 32, 15, the rock of his salvation. Verse 15, or verse 18, the rock that bore you. Verse 30, the rock had sold them, the Lord had given them up. Verse 31, for their rock is not as our rock. In all these places, the Lord is referred to as the rock. And we think about this in the Bible, don't we? We need a rock upon which to stand, a rock of stability. We need the Lord as our rock, as our foundation. And so here is Yahweh standing on the rock at Horeb, identifying as the rock. And what does Moses do? What is Moses told to do? Strike the rock. Moses, take in your hand the staff of judgment and strike the rock. Strike God. What? 
May it never be. Who would ever dare strike God? This is not the way. This cannot be God's intention. The judgment was supposed to be for the people of God. The punishment is reserved for those who have sinned against God. The wrath is supposed to be poured out on the rebels. But now the judgment, the punishment, the wrath falls upon God. He takes it upon himself. And what happens when the rock is struck? Water comes out of the rock. Not a little bit of water. It must have been quite a bit because all the people come and they all drink of this water and they are satisfied. What a distressing, yet at the same time, beautiful picture. God the rock is struck and life-giving water pours forth. God is struck and salvation is known. God is struck and blessing came to the people who did not deserve it. Blessing, blessing, more blessing, abundant blessing, blessing where you never thought there would be blessing in your wildest of dreams. Salvation is from God and it's by grace alone. You didn't deserve it. You deserve judgment. You deserve to be struck, but God was struck and water came out and satisfied you. What a foretaste of how God would bring salvation to the whole world. For there was coming another day, a day when the rock of our salvation, the stone that was rejected, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Messiah, hung upon the cross. It was there that our sin was placed upon him, the perfect and spotless lamb. It was there that the rod of God's judgment and wrath that should have fallen upon us fell upon him. He was struck for us. He willingly went to that vulnerable place of injury and of death in order to secure forgiveness and salvation for sinners. And what happened when he was struck? Salvation gushed forth, the ever-flowing blessing of life, enough to satisfy the soul of everyone who would ever come to him. This is the water that Jesus gives when he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the water that Christ is calling you to. Jesus says in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This heart in which flows out rivers of living water are those who have turned from their sin, those who believe in Jesus Christ, and those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of the living God. Is the Lord among us? If you have drunk the water of Christ, He is with you through His Spirit who is now at work in you and through you. The Lord is among us through His Spirit. And now I've just asked you to take a huge leap with me. Is it right for me to say that this rock at Horeb that we read about here in Exodus 17 is Christ? That's the question that we should be asking. 
Well, I've taken this leap because of what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you look at that with me for one moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. It appears here that as Paul is writing this, he also has this idea that this provision of water was not just a one-time provision, but that this provision lasted. It's following them wherever they go. And then what does it say? The very end of verse 4. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock that they drank from was Christ. Was it a physical drinking of water? Yes, it was a physical drinking of water, but there is also this spiritual drinking from this rock, and they were drinking of Christ himself. That is what we drink from. That is what guides and directs our life. Yet Paul goes on to say there, yet with most of them God was not pleased because they desired evil and some of them were idolaters. And so let us heed the warning of their downfall. Let us not think that we w- this would never happen to us. If we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. No temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. After this event here at Rephidim, they renamed the place. Verse 7, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Throughout the generations, there is to be a remembrance that the people acted sinfully by testing Yahweh. And think about what they are doing in their testing of the Lord. They are testing and putting to the test the whole goal of the Lord's plan of redemption. What was the Lord doing through redemption? He was making it so that the people could dwell with him again. That's where we're going in Exodus, right? The people were delivered by the Lord. We're coming up to this section where they are devoted to the Lord. And then at the end, they are dwelling with the Lord. That's the whole overarching storyline of the Bible. Where do we get in the end? New heaven and new earth where we are dwelling with the Lord forever in unadulterated glory. When they come and they are testing the Lord, they're testing His whole plan and purpose for creation. Everything that He is doing is so that He will be among us and we will dwell with Him. We know His goodness. We know His grace. We know that he will accomplish his plan, and we know it because of the cross. Here is the test that the Lord is among us. If we think about, okay, 
how do we know that God is among us? Is it because there's some miracle that is happening on Sunday? We want, Lord, show yourself. Do something that we can see visibly. It's not it, is it? The Lord shows that he is already among us through his gospel. Through the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Because we are the miracles. Those who have been saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone, we are the miracles. When you look at the Bible, if you've read through the whole Bible, and I would encourage you to do that if you haven't done that, it's interesting, all of the miracles are consolidated in just a few places in the Bible. Exodus has a lot of miracles in it. You come to Elijah and Elisha, a lot of miracles seem to be happening there. Where else do we find a lot of miracles? The life of Jesus Christ, right? Why is that? Because salvation is the miracle of God to show his goodness and to show that he is among you. When we read Hebrews 3, said this there in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. We have come to drink of Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We've drunk of him. And so we don't question the goodness of God. We don't try to judge the goodness of God. No, instead, we marvel at God's goodness. Dear Christian, dear believer, have you done that this week? Have you done that today? Will you do that next week? Will you take time and will you marvel and thank God for his goodness? And let us not take it for granted as those who are the oasis of God. We once were this desert place where there was no water, but now in this desert place, God has brought forth living water. And if you do not know Christ, this morning the invitation for you is to trust in him, drink of him. Drink of him and no longer be thirsty anymore. Find the forgiveness that he gives through his sacrifice. And know that God is with you and God is among you. And that God is among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that our hearts would hold fast to the eternal and enduring word that we might have heard from it and so, Father, have heard from you. And may our thoughts and our desires have been drawn to Christ this morning. May we treasure him above all else. May we seek to live for him. And may we be willing each day to deny ourselves Take up our cross and follow him wherever he leads because he leads us in the goodness of God so we can rejoice 
even in sufferings. Give us more faith, we pray. When we struggle, let us not test you in any way, but let us trust. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.